What's up, guys? Welcome to The Jay Martin Show and the Pursuit of Personal Sovereignty. My guest today is Robert Breedlove. I was so excited to talk to Robert today. So Robert is the host of a show called What is Money? And on his show, he has very philosophical discussions about the definitions of things like fiat currencies, wealth, government, freedom. And I, I enjoy his show very much. Now, a lot of my friends, here's the reason I wanted to talk to Robert today. A lot of my friends would describe me as very libertarian. And I would agree with that, right? I, I definitely appreciate a very limited government uh, intervention in my life, limited government overreach. Simultaneously, I appreciate free market entrepreneurship, the ability to choose what I think is best for me, and, and understanding that the laws that govern our lives are just the uh, imaginated creation of humans who are just as flawed as I am. And so they often uh, can't possibly put our, all of our best interests in mind. It's just an unrealistic expectation. And so I should be allowed to sidestep rules uh, that I don't feel are smart, right? And um, think uh, that what you may, but um, I simultaneously, as libertarian as I might be, I embrace a lot of socialist systems. For example, I'm happy to contribute my wealth in the form of tax dollars to fund public services so that somebody I've never met doesn't have to wonder if they can afford to dial 911 when their house is on fire. They can just do it and know that collectively we're picking up the bill. And I appreciate services like that, ambulance, police department, etc. Um, Robert falls in a different camp on some of these items. So I really enjoyed playing devil's advocate to a lot of his points, even the ones that I agree with. I found this to be a really fascinating conversation, and I definitely will be having Robert back on the show. Uh, there's a pinned comment, as always, in the show notes. If you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, I absolutely love writing it, and I publish every Sunday. Come join the team. The link is down in the, in the description. And here is Robert Breedlove. Enjoy. All right, welcome to the Jay Martin Show and the pursuit of personal sovereignty. And I'm joined right now by Robert Breedlove. I'm very excited about this. Robert, how you doing? Good, Jay. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So here's an interesting place that I wanted to start. This show is really built around my individual pursuit of personal sovereignty. You can describe that, uh, define it however you want. Um, I know what it means to me. You self-identify as a freedom maximalist. And so I want to dig into that a little bit. You know, as the citizen of one democratic country to the citizen of a different democratic country, where do we presently lack freedom, Robert? Yeah, well, we lack freedom in a lot of places. I guess the first thing I'd point out is we have this idea that a democratic society is somehow optimal. And I don't think that's accurate at all, actually. Um, you know, democracy essentially right now is premised on 51% tyrannizing the 49%, if you will. <laughs> this idea that we collectively come together and vote on something and then whatever majority should just rule. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Um, a more free form of human organization would be one in which everyone is given the power to say no, and that, that decision to say no, or to fork off of society or to, uh, to leave a certain commonwealth like that is respected, it's not taxed, 
it's not inhibited. Um, so, you know, just using the United States as an example, and this will get into taxation, which is another area where we're not free. If you have a net worth of, I think it's $2 million or above, and you decide that you want to leave the United States, you're not satisfied with the governance services, the property rights, whatever it is that the government's really rendering to you, and you decide as a customer of that government, you want to leave, well, just like you would leave any other service provider, right? If you had a website hosting solution and they weren't doing the job you wanted for the money you're paying, yeah. you have all this option to switch to their competitors. Sure, sure. And it's that very option that keeps each individual competitor honest, right? They have to render high quality service at a fair price. Otherwise, you're going to get outcompeted. Well, in something like the United States, if you try to leave with a million, uh, $2 million net worth or more, they impose something called the exit tax. It's basically saying when you, when you exercise that, when you exercise your sovereignty, really, to the power to say no to a service provider, in this case, government, they're actually um, enforcing theft on you. They're saying, okay, you can leave, but we're going to steal X percent of your net worth above $2 million. So we're not free. <laughs> We've come a long way. Sovereignty has become gradually more decentralized over time. You know, we're not, this isn't ancient Egypt with a couple of pharaohs and uh, multitudes of non-sovereign actors. You know, we've more evenly distributed sovereignty into the world, largely through free markets. Uh, I don't think, there's a whole rabbit hole here about the purpose of government coming up to coming into the digital age, but I think you could sum it up as government exists to defend property. And by property, I mean the relationship between people and their stuff. Mm. So for you to own a car or own a house, you have a document that says you have the exclusive rights and the exclusive responsibilities to maintain that home or that car. Mm. So it's this mutually acknowledged it's publicly acknowledged uh, exclusive relationship between you and your assets. That's property, right? That's what governments are maintaining this list essentially. And they defend the list. You outsource defense of that to the government to some extent. So if you come into your home one day and there's a guy, a random guy sleeping on your couch, well, you've got recourse to the legal system to throw him out, for instance. Yeah. So the problem with that model though of government is that it's always preyed on property rights. The very, like the, primary function of its existence is to defend the integrity of this relationship between people and their stuff. But over time, government inevitably starts to uh, feed on or extract value from the relationship between people and their stuff. This is what we call taxation. Mm -hmm. So they're actually, uh, if you don't, for instance, you have a 3% perhaps property tax on your home. If you don't pay that tax, it's not your home. So do you actually own it? No, you don't. Because if you don't pay the property tax on the home, then it's taken from you. So your ownership, your property, the integrity of your relationship between you and the home is at the leisure of the state and the state can dictate to you any tax rate that it wants. Yeah. We're fortunate today that it's, you know, in the US, at least in most states, typically relatively low two, three, four, five percent. But when you study governments historically, 
they tend to misallocate a lot of capital. They get into an insolvency phase and then they become more aggressive in their predations of private property to the point of civilizational collapse. So we've been in this repeated kind of trap where we need to outsource physical security to have strong property, to build wealth in the division of labor. That's how we become more than the sum of our parts, so to speak. But that very security mechanism we call government tends to turn back on itself at some point. It's misallocating a lot of the stolen capital. So eventually it gets very aggressive Mm -hmm. in its taxation, which is also inflation, right? When you're printing money, you're just stealing from people as well. So to try and summarize that, and I think this one lands with a lot of people, this may sound kind of like intense. We're like, well, what do you mean? Government's a bad guy. I thought they were here. Thought, thought they were thought they were here to work for me. But think about it like this: the definition of a slave is someone that has a one hundred percent effective tax rate, such that all the fruits of your labor mm. go to a tax authority, not to you. Right? You have zero percent private property rights as a slave. Someone is coercing you and all the fruits of your labor from you. Right. So a slave is someone with 100% effective tax rate. The other end of that spectrum, I would call someone that's call I would call them a sovereign, frankly. If you have a 0% effective tax rate, you're sovereign. There's no one, you keep all the fruits of your labor, you have perfect private property rights. Um, no one's stealing from you, right? All the transactions you engage in are mutually negotiated and voluntary on both sides as a sovereign. Yeah. Anywhere you fall in that spectrum between 0% sovereign and 100% slave, that is the, your effective tax rate is basically the effective percent slave you are. Mm -hmm. And if you're asking me how we're not free, well, what's your effective tax rate? Sure, sure. (laughs) That's how not free you are. So then if we look at, you know, property tax as the price you pay in exchange for the privilege of owning your home, you could look at capital gains tax is the price you pay for the privilege of owning equity or a share at a company. Corporate tax is the privilege, the price you pay for the privilege of owning a company, et cetera. Um, and in exchange, you get protection of that ownership, right? That's the, the, the give and take, which is, yeah, it's like paying anybody off for protection, right? Mm-hmm. How, how do you, wh- where do you land in terms of, here, here's where I struggle, because like I tend to fall in the more libertarian camp, especially when I you know, have chats with just peers of mine, I, I always end up on the more libertarian side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But I have, I have a handful of socialist services that I, I definitely value. And for example, one being I'm happy to pay taxes that are pooled collectively so that somebody I don't know, doesn't have to wonder if they can afford to dial 911 when their house is on fire, right? I just want that peace of mind that we can take care of people in that regard. So talk to me about that component of taxation and and which is a very socialist service right like you know public fire ambulance police etc how do you just how do you how do you process that robert well what you just said sums it up nicely that's something you want you individually want to do right you want to contribute some amount of money to a pool of money that then funds this 911 service or whatever social service it is right okay Well, that's a voluntary exchange, right? Mm -hmm. You and others like you that want to do something like that can come together voluntarily, Mm -hmm. create it and implement it. That's fine. The problem is when 
you are required to do it. You have no capacity to say no. Again, if I, like I said earlier, if the option to say no is what's keeping producers of any good or service honest, the customer's option to say no keeps the producer honest. Mm. So to flip that and look at the uh, extreme alternative case, imagine you're trying to buy a car and I'm the only one, I'm the only car dealer you have access to. Sure. Yeah. You have no power to say no. You have nowhere else to go. I'm yeah. a monopolist. Mm. So, and in a, you know, if you've studied Econ 101, monopolies are really bad. They charge yeah. really high prices, deliver very poor quality, and they're basically anti-economic, right? It's, it's, it's a coercive model. Well, that's what you have in a world where you can't say no, is mm. whoever you can't say no to is going to tend to, towards becoming more of a monopolist. Um, and now you, now they're to distinguish here, you can have a natural monopoly. It's like, I'm the only guy that discovered, uh, water in the desert. Right. And I own the land around it. Well, I have a natural monopoly that's acceptable, right? That's kind of a natural, uh, free market function. The problem, real problem is the legal monopoly. The legal monopoly is when say many other people discovered water in the desert and I go around shutting them down by force to make sure that I'm the only guy selling water in the desert. That's a legal monopoly. I'm using coercion yeah. to enforce the monopoly, not a, not a happenstance of, of free market dynamics where I just owned a piece of land and it happened to have all the water, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at government and central banking, it's premised entirely on this legal monopoly model where you don't, you're not given the power to say no. You're not given the power to negotiate. And that does not, the important distinction here is that that does not, that is not mutually exclusive with social services. You can have whatever social services, build whatever roads you want, whatever type of socialized healthcare, you can have all of these things uh, in a world premised on voluntarism. You don't need the involuntary exchange of taxation to fund that. That's just kind of the moral camouflage, I would argue that the states sweep this under as, yeah. because you always hear this from the non-libertarians. What's the first argument? What about the roads? Who's going to build the roads? It's like, if yeah. there's a human want and there's yeah. a human capability, we can solve the problem. At no point do you need uh, coercion or the point of a gun at anyone to get a deal like that done. It's just human wants meeting satisfiers of human wants in the marketplace, coming to mutual terms, creating the road or the service or the satisfaction to whatever want you can imagine that functions best. It keeps everything balanced. Um, and generating generative to wealth and generative to value. Um, the last thing I'll say here is just, there's a really important concept in economics called the end and stop me if you've heard this before, but, um, oh, the, the name now is getting me. It's not, it's, um, the inequality of exchange is the term. Okay. And so what this essentially means is when you and I come to the table to do a deal, whatever it is, we're negotiating terms, trading something for something, right? Money for labor, money for goods, money for yeah. services, money for money, whatever, any deal where we're trading something. The point at which you value what I have more than you value what you're giving up, and I do the same in reverse, I value more 
I value what you have more than what I'm giving up at that precise point is when we trade mm-hmm. at no other point. Do we trade, right? Because I have, you, you have to be psychologically better off in the deal as do I, otherwise we're never going to do it. Mm-hmm. If we were equal, this is kind of counterintuitive because people tend to think, Oh, if you swapped, you know, two cars for this one house, then two cars equals one house. Right. Well, not exactly, because the guy trading away the cars had to value the house more, and the guy trading away the house had to value the cars more. So the point is, only through mutual voluntary exchange do you get mutual psychological profit, or said difference, uh, mutual value creation. Both parties leave the trade psychologically better off or creating more value, better satisfying their wants than they did going into the trade. Sure. And that's the magic of capitalism, right? Yeah. Everyone's better off in every mutual trade. And we build up in layers, this you know, giant stock of capital that makes everyone's life better, easier, you know, all, all the miracles of innovation and capital accumulation. So it's essential. It's a voluntary exchange is essential. And if you introduce involuntary exchange to that equation, you break it right now. Every time there's an involuntary exchange where you had to do the deal because I had a gun pointed at you or there's some other legal threat or I'm the monopolist in town. I'm the legal monopolist. I've shut down all my competitors. Right. You now leave the deal psychologically worse off, right? You're like, this is the only shop in town. I had no choice. I had to go here. Mm. He told me a price that I thought was two X more than it's worth, but I have no other option. Yeah. Yeah. So it's psychologically destructive. It's value destructive. It's wealth destructive. When you introduce the phenomenon of involuntary exchange into the marketplace, it breaks down the marketplace, actually, because the marketplace is the form of free exchange. Once you introduce involuntary exchange into the equation, it moves away from being a market and moves towards something like being a centrally planned economy. Mm-hmm. Now, let me let me ask you a question. You said, I believe, we're, we've come a long way in terms of uh, national sovereignty. Right. Or something close to that. Right. And we're talking about the individual people. sovereignty, I'd say individual sovereignty. OK. And that's in relation to, you know, the, the journey of humans over time. We're talking about, you know, numerous empires that have risen and fallen over years. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, so taking a look at the American experiment, for example, right, quite, quite a brilliant um, quite a brilliant experiment, right? Uh, constitution that really limited the power of the leader. That was what I understand is that the power of the constitution was that it limited the power made a very inefficient government by design, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Hard to get things done, hard to change things, therefore left the power in the people. Right. As the government's grown, that's definitely decreased and the individual sovereignty within the United States has decreased alongside with it. So are these two cycles occurring at once, the long-term cycle of increased personal sovereignty, but you know, within that, there's these short-term cycles like the rise and fall of numerous empires, maybe, maybe begin with good intentions, but over time, just decrease sovereignty, decrease freedom until they eventually collapse on themselves. And then we enter the next short-term cycle in the long-term cycle. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that's, uh, that's one way to put it, I think, is that if you look at the longest arc of human history, we are trending towards more individual sovereignty, which right. again, just rewind 5,000 years, ancient Egypt. Sure. The Pharaoh God King is fully sovereign. Yeah. A few of his henchmen around him perhaps are semi, like very lowly semi-sovereign. And then many tens of thousands of non-sovereign slaves, basically. Yeah. yeah. So very concentrated sovereignty in that model. Um, and indeed, many early stage uh, 
human organizations, like the tribal, even a tribal mode of being, you tend to have one strong guy on top, right? He's sovereign. He's the, he's the government. Basically, he or they are the government. They're the, the martial force, and they command uh, the most resources for themselves. And there's not a lot of, there's not really strong property inside of that group. It's just like those guys own the group and all of its fruits, and then they divvy it up amongst um, other people within the group. So it's a very archaic model of human organization that the strong man, or always strong man, let's be real here, the strong man rules the tribe. But in 1215, you know, the Magna Carta was signed, and the three tenets of civilization inside the Magna Carta were the right to life, liberty, and inviolable property. And we inherited this later into the U.S. Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We swapped mm. out property for pursuit of happiness. Mm. Um, and people like to argue about this one, but I'll just say, good luck pursuing happiness without private property. You can do anything in the world. Right? You can go out and create any amount of value in the world. Plant a garden, start a business, make some breakthrough innovation. But if you don't have the, if you don't have the value, if you cannot capture value from that creation, right? You have solved a problem for a lot of people. If you're not incentivized to do that, if you don't have strong private property in the outcome of that project, whatever it is then you're not going to capture any value that you're creating. So you have no incentive to serve others. Whereas if you do have strong property rights, you are incentivized to solve other people's problems because solving the more people's problems you solve, the richer you get. Right. In tandem with how strong your property is. So the stronger, the, the, the more, the higher assurance your relationship between yourself and the fruits of your labor the more incentivized you are to engage in peaceful, long-term cooperation, trade, to do business, frankly. <clears throat> to And you could put all this under the rubric of making, right? There's two ways to acquire wealth in the world. There's making and there's taking. Making would be working, trading, building a business, like managing a profitable business, you know, being prudent, saving, all of these things. And then taking would be the opposite. So taking would be, going and forcibly acquiring the guy's garden that he planted or taking the business or stealing his money, mm -hmm. right? That's another way to acquire wealth, but it, it necessitates the violation of property. I have to go and violate someone else's property to acquire work, to acquire the fruits of their labor, right? They have acquired this thing through honest, hard work. I've acquired it through forcible confiscation. So, we learned a long time ago that life, liberty, and property are the basis of civilization. And really, I argue, to get, tie this back to freedom, these are just three temporal aspects of freedom. If I take your life, I've taken your future freedom, right? You kill someone, what have you done? You've taken away their future, right? It's gone. If you take someone's liberty, you've thrown them in prison or you've shackled them. You've removed their ability to have liberty in the present. And finally, if you take someone's property, you are stealing the fruits of their past freedom. Right? Like things that they went out into the world and voluntarily created and traded with others to accumulate some wealth, some capital. 
if you take that from them, that is that capital that they've created is the manifestation of their past freedom, right? They spent their freedom in the past doing things to create that. Mm-hmm. So our government was at least, you know, the US government was at least set up on this premise that we wanted low to no government, you know, what's the old quote that the government that governs best governs least. Mm-hmm. We had low and predictable taxes. We had a lot of free trade. Um, we had very libertarian founding fathers in many ways. And to your point earlier, yes, they set up government to be decentralized, a decentralized republic that was intended to move slow, be hard to change, to really maximize individual sovereignty, right? It was putting these things, life, liberty, and property, it was really held to be more important. It was the guiding principle of the entire hierarchy. So in a way, Western civilization, one of its primary characterizations is that it holds the sovereignty of the individual above the sovereignty of the state. And that's what's made it work so well. We get you know access to nonviolent dispute resolution and the rule of law. We have reasonably strong private property. Uh, we have this long tradition of uh, deferred gratification, you know, making more than you spend sure, and sure. saving, basically. Yeah. So, and what does that what does all that sound like? By the way, I think to tie this into Bitcoin, decentralized, really hard to change, and it just. It is life, liberty, and property written in unbreakable code, effectively. Like clearly, Bitcoin doesn't protect your life, doesn't give you some kind of force field against bullets or violence, but it does give you this tremendous liberation, and that now you have a ca- form of capital that's immune to the opinions of other people. You can't be, it's hard to enforce capital controls on Bitcoin, it's hard to tax Bitcoin. Um, impossible to inflate Bitcoin, which is really important. And if you look at it through the property lens, you know, for the first time, again, if property is just the relationship between an owner and their asset, then Bitcoin has given us this, that ancient ideal of inviolable property that we wrote about in the Magna Carta 800 some odd years ago. Well, now we finally have a working implementation of that. If I acquire Bitcoin and I take possession of my private keys and I put them into what I would recommend is the strongest security schema, a geographically distributed multi-sig. So you have multiple keys, maybe it's three or five needed to unlock unlock access to the Bitcoin. And then you distribute that geographically and you implement certain protocols that are necessary to get a quorum of three or five to move funds or activate funds. Mm -hmm. You can get very creative in this space, but it gives you this property, right? That is so hard to break. Like if it's implemented correctly, it's basically unbreakable property. No one can steal it from you, not even under duress. Um, Now it's not perfect. Of course you can still ransom people and things like that, but yeah. It's by far the strongest property right we've ever had in the world, especially when you consider, and this is a very key point, every dollar printed is a violation of private property. When a legal monopoly is producing new dollars, and these dollars are just a promise to goods and services, right? Mm -hmm. They're just, each dollar is just a future promise to receiving goods and services. 
they're basically awarding themselves new promises. And then when they spend that money into circulation, those who cannot produce new dollars are being taxed via inflation. So not only is taxation the theft of private, pro private property, but inflation is taxation. And it's one of the least visible, least understood forms of property violation. And it gives government the most plausible deniability, which mm -hmm. you see in the world today. Look at all the rhetoric coming out of the White House. Oh, inflation's really bad, but it's that war in Ukraine. It's yeah, COVID. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. this. It's any, they'll never, and you just pay attention to this, they'll never bring up the central bank ever. They will never say this has to do with the fact that we printed $6 trillion in the past two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They just won't say it. Yeah. And it's like the most obvious, there's no, I can't think of anything more obvious. Yeah, I'm with you. Tell me prices went up because $6 trillion were printed in the past two years. That has nothing to do with prices going up. I mean, it really hard pill to swallow. Yeah, no, I get it. And, you know, just last week, uh, you know, Biden was referring to uh, consumer, I guess, price inflation, specific to food and fuel as Putin's tax. He was calling this yeah. Putin's tax on food and fuel, which is a handful of a handful of things wrong with that. First and foremost, like, where is the leadership? I mean, you're, you're just setting a horrible example to an entire generation of people about how to lead, right? You lead by pointing the finger. I mean, it's just the worst, just makes me irate. But, uh, okay, I want to like double back here and I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate because I guess I'm going to ask the questions that constantly or often get asked to me and, and try to, that I'm trying to understand the answers to better. So look, we, we pay property tax in exchange for, um, you know, a system that guarantees this asset is ours, right? That sort of, you know, documents our ownership, all this stuff. Yes, that could be replaced by a technology like, um, like Bitcoin or blockchain in terms of um, demonstrating that this asset is actually in mine. But when it comes to enforcing that, right, that's what we really pay for, right? Because in the world, as you said, there's, there's makers and takers, and there's always going to be both, mm -hmm. right? So for, for the makers who are victims of the takers, what do they get? Like how, how do they replace that, that property tax fee they pay in exchange for enforcement of the law that says, mm -hmm. yeah, that's your house. Everybody knows it, but you still need somebody with arms to show up and enforce if there's somebody mm -hmm. squatting on your land. So how, how is that system replaced? Does that make sense? Yeah. So you can have defense and security. We have it at go to any nightclub, right? They have bouncers. Yeah. They're not government officials, right? You can have private security. A lot of, I for think those who can afford for... it though, but what about, you know, the, the, the makers that can't afford to protect themselves from the takers. Well, if you, your property is only yours to the extent that you can defend it. This is a key sure. point. So if you can't afford to defend physical property from takers, then you probably shouldn't be holding physical property. You now, should probably be holding something that's really hard to take. I'm with, I'm with you. And I guess the, I mean, the common response that I would get to that statement and that you must is that like, yeah, but we've come a long way where, you know, where we should look out for each other. We're better than that, right? Look at all this abundance we've created. Is there not some sense of community that we should be pooling together? Like, how, how do you... It's, it's do you that type of uh, naivete that gets preyed upon. So when people say, oh, we should do this, we should, like, there's one thing in freedom maximalism, I often tell people is don't should all over yourself. Right. Yeah. Because shoulds don't matter. What is, what is should? 
you, maybe we should, right? We should all love one another. We should all, in my opinion, <laughs> try to exemplify the consciousness and lifestyle of someone like Christ or Buddha. We should. But do we? <laughs> no, we don't. Um, so I don't think that's a viable, it just doesn't work. If you think that people are going to reconfigure themselves based on your opinion or your shoulds or your moralizing, I don't think we're living in the same universe. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll see whose strategy actually works. The point is quite simply that if coercion is profitable, someone will engage in it. So the key, like the things we're describing here, the U.S. Constitution, the decentralized republic, Bitcoin, these all make coercion less profitable. They make coercion riskier, right? It's risky to break into someone's house and steal their stuff. Yeah. Right. It's potentially very profitable. You just need to spend one night's work and maybe you get their, you know, watches or jewels or whatever. There's a big profit margin of potential, but there's a big risk attached to that with, uh, this legal apparatus. So again, it's contributed towards the um, advancement of individual sovereignty, but the core theme is what does this system or technology do to the profitability of coercion? So said another way, the more expensive we can make property to violate, the more people are incentivized to engage in making and not taking. You're basically driving down the profit margin of taking through technology, through socioeconomic systems. Um, So I, you know, the key point with physical defense is that you don't need a a monopoly on violence, which is the state is not the sole possible producer of security. And I understand that not everyone can afford private security, but this, this is kind of a conundrum too, because the reason people can't afford that there's not more wealth in the world is because the defender of property is so aggressively preying on property. So it's inhibiting aggregate wealth creation. And on this point, again, it may sound crazy. It may sound overblown, but go read Mises, go read Rothbard, go read Ayn Rand. I mean, there's a long, long history of this libertarian philosophy on this exact phenomenon we're going through again today. Mm. And this is not, this isn't empirical even. This isn't like we've observed, we have observed this throughout history, but that's not the foundation for this argument. The foundation for this argument is economic rationalism. Like for the same reason that people prefer satisfaction sooner rather than later, all things held equal, right? If, if you're going to sell me on, um, if, if you're going to sell me on accepting a satisfaction to my want later, I'm going to need more satisfaction. I need some compensation for the risk. Yeah. Does that make sense? This is, this is, um, this is the interest rate, frankly. How interest, at what rate am I interested in receiving capital now versus later? Yeah. Yeah. Are you still there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I got a little latency fluctuation there. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. You know, let me, let me like pull on something here. So uh, when you answer my question, you talked about kind of this, this fallacy utopia that we would love to live in, or some people would love to live in, but it's just not realistic. And right away where I went with that was like, you know, we, we tend to forget that 
very recently we were wild animals and we're so domesticated now that we just have a different expectation about what life should provide to us, right? And this I think is a trend that is accelerating and we watch it manifest in, you know, our, our, our fear of discomfort, whether that realizes itself in like censorship and cancel culture, but like, if this offends me, we need to protect ourselves from it and get rid of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a disturbing trend, right. But it's, it's one that we're watching just amplify in front of us. And so is this like, I kind of wonder, is this society breaking, right? The world tends to break about every 10 years. Right. And are we Mm -hmm. getting to a place now, these massive political divides, uh, civil unrest, et cetera, but just a, a lack of communication, um, between any, any opposite viewpoints. And, and I look at the safetyism trend as quite dangerous. And I wonder how do you, how do you remind people that we're actually very resilient, anti-fragile, tough species, right? I was having a long debate conversation with a good friend of mine yesterday about this. And, you know, he kind of takes this position. I'm not going to name his name, but that a lot of this is just really Darwinian. It's very much natural selection that um, certain things that are people are being coerced into, it's kind of like a test of your critical thinking. And if you, if you give in to the coercion, right, and you accept the mandate, whatever it may be, then you've kind of failed the test. And that's what's going on here, right? There's a, there are groups of people that understand we're all running cognitive software and there's, we're all programmable ultimately (laughs) to some extent. Sure. And there are a cadre of people that will engage, uh, that will engage in attempts, many forms of attempts to try and program people in a way that supports their agenda or vision. And then if you're talking about people being one of the core ways to be sovereign, in my opinion, is to realize that you are a human being running cognitive software and you are programmable, right? You get this metacognitive realization and then you're like, oh, so now I can choose which books to read. I can choose who to spend time with. I can choose which lines of business to be in. I can program myself. Mm-hmm. And physically too, right? You can, it's kind of like working out. You can, what, what kind of exercise you engage in is what type of body you build. Well, what type of cognitive training you do, turns out what kind of mind you build. So you can, you can control yourself. And so his position on all this is that you, the hand of those that would seek to program and control others has kind of been forced in the digital age because we used to have, very effective top-down media model, right? There's just a few channels. Um, A a lot of the large capital groups, which I would just refer to as shareholders of central banks, tend to own most of those media outlets. So they control the narrative that's being promulgated. Well, what they don't see coming, and this is what often changes human history very sharply, is technology, right? New technology emerges, a new technological landscape emerges that those in power, they could control the old model, they cannot control the new model. And so this creates all this discombobulation that I think we're going through today, kind of forces their hand too. So I think a lot of this COVID hysteria, state over response, overreach, I always point people to the book, The Sovereign Individual, 
you've probably heard me mention this if you've ever watched any of my episodes i think i yeah. mentioned it in almost every episode it was a book written in 1997 that had made a, a number of remarkable and accurate predictions uh one of which the the main thesis of the book really is that software would eat the state that the emergence of things like anonymous digital cash and encrypted communications and social media all of these things would would disempower the state, disempower the state's control over people. Um, and indeed, I think that's what we're going through. So it's, uh, you know, it can get a little tinfoil hat-ish, but if you look over the past two years, people wearing the tinfoil hats have been relatively spot on. Um, and you mentioned, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, the world breaking every 10 years this is not normal um when we had you know periods of sound money we'd have many decades of peace prosperity cultural flourishing mm. this accelerated breakdown in our in you know call it socioeconomic volatility is driven largely by the central bank this is the austrian business cycle theory you can read about this this is one of mises's crowning achievements he wrote about it in the 1940s he predicted everything we're going through today, not from an empirical standpoint, again, from a logically deduced argument that if you start to break down the currency, you're going to accelerate the booms and busts of the market cycle until you reach one of two inevitable endpoints. One is deflationary collapse back to economic reality. So you stop distorting price signals and you let the market reset, clear the errors. Mm -hmm. Or two, which is the one typically reached is hyperinflation of the currency. You have to keep debasing the currency more and faster to keep the debt structure in place until the whole thing breaks down. And when we look at the both the precedent and the incentives of central banks, they tend to engage in monetary debasement to the point of hyperinflation. So, and this was all summed up really good in a tweet I saw the other day. And it said, millennials are currently looking at the third quote unquote, once in a lifetime financial crises. All right, we had 2008, yeah. Yeah, we had yeah. 2020, and here we are staring down the barrel of a gun again in another massive, quote unquote, once in a lifetime financial recession. Sure. It's all bullshit. The more governments intervene in markets, the more, the less effective markets are at creating wealth, the more volatile they are, the more uncertain they are, the more chaotic life becomes. <clears throat> It's really that simple. So that's why I take an absolute stance on freedom. I really think if you maximize the integrity of life, liberty, and property, everything else sorts itself out. Well, let's get, let's get actionable with that then, Robert. What are you doing in your personal life right now to increase your personal sovereignty? I buy Bitcoin every single day. I buy dips, price dips, and I never sell. Um, now, I'm also very intrigued with the idea of 3D printed weapons. I think the idea that guns have now become code, like uh, self-defense is now open source code to some extent. That's a very liberating force. Um, I think privacy technologies of all kinds are very useful. The more, the more illegible you can make yourself to the state, right? The state needs you to be inside of a box and to be very traceable, all of your actions, all of your spending, all of everyone you engage with, the more traceable and trackable you are, the more taxable you are. 
So the more you can privatize your life, anonymize yourself and your affairs, the better off you are. Um, and there's a whole, I mean, privacy is its, its own rabbit hole, right? You could check out Jameson Lop. I think it's lop.net, L-O-P-P.net. He has, uh, he's a longtime Bitcoiner. He has a lot of resources on that page, but he's got a whole, whole page dedicated to privacy tech. It's really interesting. Um, I've also been, I've spent, as I mentioned to you offline, spent the past two years traveling, really trying to stake out a good place in the world to be. I wanted to be in a place that has a very non-compliant culture. I think this is very important to resist uh, this programming <laughs> that states try to impose upon you. Like when you, I was in LA when COVID hit and LA is a very poor, it's a very compliant culture. And they've been very negatively affected by COVID and all the associated regulations, as is New York City. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm currently in Costa Rica. And, you know, people don't buy into that down here. Um, I would also say the American South when I was traveling. I'm from Tennessee, so I'm very biased. But places like Tennessee, Texas, the South, everyone knew that uh all the COVID hysteria was exactly that just hysteria and again from just a pure cost benefit standpoint i think you want to be in places and around people that are just more expensive to tyrannize that will be a good strategy to protect yourself going into the decades ahead that's interesting and you know it's when you say that i'm like i go to the united states right and i think about like I've, I've traveled a lot through the U.S. in the last year and my family's dual. We've actually had really in-depth discussions about what's our line, like what's going to push us south of the border. And if so, where would we go? And what I love about America as a Canadian is the sovereignty of the states, right? I've been to just in the last year, um, like Louisiana, Mississippi, Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, New York, Texas, Arizona. And every single time you cross a state line, it's a whole new style of risk management, right? When it comes mm -hmm. to this specific risk, which I love because you can kind of choose your own adventure, right? Mm -hmm. Take into a grander scale, sure, leave the country, explore Central South America, Europe, wherever. Um, now, when you say it's, what do you say? It was, it was complicated to, um, to impose restrictions on freedoms. I'm not getting how you said it, but that's essentially what you said. Now, is that in a place like Costa Rica, is that because of uh, challenges in the communication system? Like in the States, the right to bear arms, I think protects a lot of freedoms, right? That's why certain states are able to, you know, hold their own and say, we're not going to follow every mandate and good luck trying to yeah. push us. Whereas if you go to a more developed nation, is it, is it the breakdown in communication and policing or what's the... Well, it, you know, it's a lot of factors, clearly. Um, I think, and I don't, I'm not deeply knowledgeable on Costa Rican history, for instance, but I, I'm pretty sure they're one of the only countries with no standing military. And essentially they've outsourced all of their geographic security to the United States. Yeah. Um, there's also the area that I'm in, the roads are very underdeveloped, like they're bumpy, rugged roads. So you're yeah. not, people aren't traveling 70 miles an hour up and down the roads around here. You know, people are on ATVs and motorcycles going you know, 20, 15, 20 miles an hour. And there's a lot of we're near the water, but there's also a lot of mountainous, a lot of uh, varied 
topography, let's say. Yeah. And there's a culture of, I don't know if this is, uh, it's a very cosmopolitan culture, but it just seems like uh, expats, for instance, have been coming here for two or three decades. So they yeah. kind of like carved out this little niche of uh, a tropical place to go get away to. And there just seems to be very low government intervention overall. So it's very, it's very free market, frankly. Mm. Um, and so culture matters, topography matters, um, conditioning, right? We talked about this. If everyone's programmable, then culture kind of becomes like this distributed software layer. You're plugging into it, right? When you move into another culture, well, there's a reason everything's so different and you have to adapt and adjust because people are running a slightly different software package than you are. Yeah. So you now have to adapt yourself to the new culture. And if you're in a culture like LA where people just, and I, I mean, my argument here, I think Balaji said this really well, that when you remove G-O-D, God, when you move that from the socioeconomic fabric, it's like, uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum or power likes to fill, fill a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It's like people start to put G-O-V where we used to hold G-O-D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And you see that in LA and New York, they just unquestioningly accept whatever is told to them. You know, yeah. yes, tell me how many masks, how many jabs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long do I need to stay home? Yeah. yeah. Whatever you say. And that is what I'm trying to get as far away from as possible. I just don't want to be around. That's that's mass psychosis. Yeah. Right yeah, yeah. People not thinking for themselves, people just towing the party line, doing what they're told. I don't want to be anywhere near that. <laughs> Sure. I'm with you, man. And so. it's funny how watching culture develop in Canada over the last two years has been really disheartening because I've always enjoyed living in such a passive country, right? Like we don't have a lot of chaos at the political level ever, you know, it's pretty quiet up here. Mm -hmm. uh, however, maybe as a consequence of that, like the, the onboarding to every mandate has been, I would say very extreme. And mm -hmm. I found myself to be an extraordinary outlier as a consequence which is a frustrating place to live, right? Because yeah. I feel like a bit of a castaway, right? Which is why my wife and I have been having the conversations about when, you know, mm -hmm. do we, what's our line, right? And I've never felt fearful about the future of our nation, but I absolutely do today, you know? And mm -hmm. I look at the individual in charge and it's, I just find that all sorts of new precedents have been set. And we have yeah. a tendency to look at actions like this as like, something that happened and not look at them as trajectories all right like right. The precedent that's been set the doors now open right for all variety of of um terrifying situations in my experience okay i want to pull on your your bitcoin comment you said i buy bitcoin every day and i never sell it and so mm -hmm. what's the bet you're making there robert because i let me tell you my my bitcoin strategy and, and then share yours so I'm, I'm not the same but i'm similar in that i dollar cost average in and i don't have a sell date right? Uh -huh. I haven't bought Bitcoin for about a year. I just felt like it was getting a bit crazy and I don't, I'm not in the space enough to like try to time prices. I don't do that anyways, but I started buying again this week for the first time in a year. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't have like a, what's going to make me sell event, which typically if I buy something, right, I'm a merchant, I buy and sell things mm -hmm. in the market or mm -hmm. whatever. I know why I buy. So I know why I'll sell. I buy Bitcoin. I'm unclear what would make me sell. I'm just holding for the long term, just in mm -hmm. case, to make sure I have a horse in that race. Talk to me about what you're doing. Well, the 
approximate bet on Bitcoin. I mean, look, I'm not, first thing I should say is I, I don't want to be prescriptive to anyone ever about what they should buy or hold yeah, yeah. or save. You know, this is not financial advice, all the traditional caveats, but I actually mean it because if you just buy something on my advice, well, you don't have any conviction in that asset. So as soon as the price does something weird, either goes way down or goes way up, you're probably going to sell it. And so what I think I always suggest the first step to building a portfolio is to just build a worldview, right? Educate yourself and then let your portfolio construction be a reflection of your actual conviction, right? What do you actually believe is going on in the world? And don't, you know, you can listen to people, right? You can listen to other opinions, but you should assimilate multiple opinions and then come to your own conclusion, right? Don't blindly follow any individual. So hmm. All that said, I think the general, and this is what I try to go to go into on the show, is the first principles of money, the nature of money, how it works, how it's evolved historically, and where I think it's evolving today. Um, and you know, that's many hundreds of hours of content we've put out on the show. It's not an easy topic. It touches everything in world history. It has a lot of psychological implications. Um, so I wouldn't even know where to begin here at the last few minutes, but I would just say this, that anywhere and everywhere, human being a way to print money other humans would use or would be forced to use, we have done it, right? The temptation to print money is so wholly overwhelming and irresistible to people that we just have always given into it. Mm -hmm. And when you add to the fact that money printing early on, it's like very much like a drug and that it has this stimulative effect, right? If the economy is in recession and people aren't working and there aren't investments or aren't, the trading is not taking place, well, if you just throw some more liquidity into that market, that's going to create some activity, right? People are going to do some stuff and the money's going to move. But it also creates this misallocation of capital, and again, back to Mises boom and bust uh, uh, Austrian business cycle theory, that's what he described. So it is very much like a drug and that it has these, you know, marginally beneficial effects at first, but very quickly you get addicted and you need more and more money printing to create a smaller and smaller result. Mm. So just like when you go out and have a drink at night, the first, whatever your number, two, three, four beers feels great. And then you get to some tipping point and five, six, seven aren't quite as good whatever your number is, printing money is very much the same. It's addictive and it has diminishing returns. So the bet on owning Bitcoin is essentially that human beings are going to keep being human. Uh, we're going to keep printing money. We're going to keep engaging in this self-deceptive act that we think printing money can solve real economic problems. And it's a flat out delusion. You cannot violate property rights of others to solve real economic problems in any systemic way. And that bet has been a really good one, especially over the past two years, uh, where we've engaged in unprecedented post-wartime money supply expansion. And it's, again, it doesn't, it doesn't slow down, it accelerates. You have to keep printing exponentially more to get the same effects. And especially now that we're at this point where money is being handed out, right? People, this is happening in various countries around the world where we're talking about giving people universal basic income, 
right? Yeah. Free money forever. The, all this stuff leads to one place and one place only, and that is the hyperinflation of whatever fiat currency it is. And so I think over the next 15, I have a public prediction by the year 2035, the US dollar is hyperinflated to zero. And in a world where the US dollar is hyperinflated to zero, Bitcoin goes to infinity in dollar terms. And what does that actually mean? It means that you stop thinking in dollars, you stop pricing in dollars, Bitcoin disrupts all other monies, it disrupts gold, all fiat currencies, all alternative store val stores of value. And it becomes the premier asset. Because again, it's the one untouchable private property right in the world. It's the only thing that I can hold my wealth in that's independent of everyone else's opinion. No one can change the rules. No one can take it from me. Mm -hmm. No one knows how much I have. It's just uh, independent private wealth. And I think that value proposition is extremely important in a world where governments are just increasingly desperate, increasingly insolvent, and in therefore increasingly overreaching, oppressive, uh, heavy-handed in taxation, heavy-handed in inflation. The world's going to get really ugly, I think, before it gets better. And Bitcoin is essentially a lifeboat to the other side. Oh, man, there's so many threads on there I want to pull on. I know we're we're bumping up against the clock. So what I'm going to do instead, uh, actually, because on your on your when you speak about, uh, you know, private money and, and wealth um, immediately, you know, my background, you know, 12 years ago when I started in the market it was all in the precious metal sector. That's how I cut my teeth and, you know, investing in gold. I still own, own physical gold. I think people should own both Bitcoin and gold. But your episode with Lawrence Lepard, it's it's episode number 173 on the What is Money podcast. That's Robert's podcast. Go check it out. It's excellent. And if I would suggest an episode to start with, I would start with that one because phenomenal conversation and absolutely worth your time. Um, Lawrence you. is a legend and came from the precious metals investing space. And now he's transitioned, you know, money manager, investor. Now he's looking at the crypto space. And, and I love, I love that because there's a lot of like evangelical sentiment in both gold mm -hmm. and, and Bitcoin. And so mm -hmm. it's nice, you know, to hear the, the, the moderates come out and say, here's what I'm seeing and here's why I'm shifting my focus or adding this to my portfolio and very valuable. Yeah, yeah, Lawrence is great. And he, you know, Bitcoiners are just gold bugs with better technology. And Lawrence <laughs> is one of those guys that crossed the chasm and under, yeah. understands that. Um, and all, but all the same principles apply. All the things gold bugs have been fighting for for decades, the same yeah. things Bitcoiners are fighting for. It's the same conversation, 100%. It's the same conversation I was hearing 12, 15 years ago, you know, from silver bugs and gold bugs. You know, the, the values and the culture is very, it's the same. It's the same. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. Um, all right. Look, Robert, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on. Again, check out the What Is Money podcast. That's Robert's show. Um, and uh, I'd love to do this again sometime, but have fun in Costa Rica. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate it. Um, it's whatismoneypodcast.com. I think you could also find me on Twitter at breedlove22. Um, yeah. I live to talk about this and educate about this. I've made this kind of my life's work. So feel free to reach out and engage. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.